Section 8 of The Golden Scarecrow by Hugh Walpole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Cynthia Moyer. Chapter 7 Barbara Flint. Part 1 Barbara Flint was a little girl, aged seven, who lived with her parents at number 36 March Square. Her brother and sister, Master Anthony and Miss Misabel Flint, were years and years older, so you must understand that she led rather a solitary life. She was a child with very pale flaxen hair, very pale blue eyes, very pale cheeks. She looked like a china doll who had been left by a careless mistress out in the rain. She was a very sensitive child, cried at the least provocation, very affectionate, too, and ready to imagine that people didn't like her. Mr. Flint was a stout, elderly gentleman whose favorite pursuit was to read the newspapers in his club and to inveigh against the liberals. He was pale and pasty and suffered from indigestion. Mrs. Flint was tall, thin, and severe, and a great helper at St. Matthew's, the church round the corner. She gave up all her time to church work and the care of the poor, and it wasn't her fault that the poor hated her. Between the Scylla of politics and the Charybdis of religion, there was very little left for poor Barbara. She faded away under the care of an elderly governess who suffered from a perfect cascade of ill-fated love affairs. It seemed that gentlemen were always playing with her feelings. But in all probability, a too vivid imagination led her astray in this matter. At any rate, she cried so often during Barbara's lessons that the title of the lesson book, Reading Without Tears, was sadly belied. It might be expected that, under these unfavorable circumstances, Barbara was growing into a depressed and melancholy childhood. Barbara, happily, was saved by her imagination. Surely nothing quite like Barbara's imagination had ever been seen before, because it came to her outside inheritance, outside environment, outside observation. She had it altogether in spite of Flint's past and present, but perhaps not altogether in spite of March Square. It would be difficult to say how deeply the fountain, the almond tree, the green, flat, shining grass had stung her intuition, but stung it only, not created it. The thing was there from the beginning of all time. She talked at first to nurses, servants, her mother, about the things that she knew, about her friend who often came to see her, who was there so many times, 
there in the room with her when they couldn't catch a glimpse of him about the days and nights when she was away anywhere up in the sky out on the air deep in the sea about all the other experiences that she remembered but was now rapidly losing consciousness of she talked at first easily naturally and inviting as it were return confidences then quite suddenly she realized that she simply wasn't believed that she was considered a wicked little girl for making things up so that there was no hope at all for her unless she abandoned her lying ways the shock of this discovery flung her straight back upon herself if they refused to believe these things then there was nothing to be done but for herself their incredulity should not stop her she became a very quiet little girl what her nurse called brooding this incredulity of theirs drove them all instantly into a hostile camp and the affection that she had been longing to lavish upon them must now be reserved for other and she could not help feeling wiser persons this division of herself from the immediate world hurt her very much from a very early age indeed we need reassurance as to the necessity for our existence barbara simply did not seem to be wanted but still worse now that her belief in certain things had been challenged she herself began to question them was it true possibly when a flaming sunset struck a sword across the square and caught the fountain slashing it into a million glittering fragments that that was all that occurred such a thing had been for barbara simply a door into her earlier world see the fountain well you have been tested you are still simple enough to go back into the real world but was barbara simple enough she was seven it is just about then that we begin under the guard of nurses carefully chosen for us by our parents to drop our simplicity it must of course be so or the world would be all dreamers and then there would be no commerce barbara knew nothing of commerce but she did know that she was unhappy that her dolls gave her no happiness and that her friend did not come now so often to see her she was i am afraid in character a hopper she must be affectionate she must demand affection of others and will they not give it her then must they simulate it the tragedy of it all was perhaps that barbara had not herself that colored vitality in her that would prepare other people to be fond of her the world is divided between those who place affection about now here 
now there, and those whose souls lie like drawers, unawares, but ready for the affection to be laid there. Barbara could not place it about. She had neither optimism nor a sense of humour sufficient, but she wanted it, wanted it terribly. If she were not to be allowed to indulge her imagination, then must she, all the more, love someone with fervour. The two things were interdependent. She surveyed her world with an eye to this possible loving. There was her governess, who had been with her for a year now, tearful, bony, using Barbara as a means and never as an end. Barbara did not love her. How could she? Moreover, there were other physical things, the lean, shining marble of Miss Letts's long fingers, the dry thinness of her hair, the way that the tip of her nose would be suddenly red and then, like a blown-out candle, dull white again. Fingers and noses are not the only agents in the human affections, but they have most certainly something to do with them. Moreover, Miss Letts was too busily engaged with the survey of her relations, with now this gentleman, now that, to pay much attention to Barbara. She dismissed her as a queer little thing. There were, in Miss Letts's world, queer things and things not queer. The division was patent to anybody. Barbara's father and mother were also surveyed. Here Barbara was baffled by the determination on the part of both of them that she should talk, should think, should dream about all the things concerning which she could not talk, think, nor dream. How to grow up into a nice little girl. How to pray to God. How never to tell lies how to keep one's clothes clean. These things did not interest Barbara in the least. But had she been given love with them, she might have paid some attention. But a too rigidly defined politics, a too rigidly defined religion, find love a poor, loose, sentimental thing. Very rightly so, perhaps. Mrs. Flint was afraid that Barbara was a silly little girl. I hope, Miss Letts, that she no longer talks about her silly fancies. She has said nothing to me in that respect for a considerable period, Mrs. Flint. All very young children have fancies, but such things are dangerous when they grow older. I agree with you. Nevertheless, the fountain continued to flash in the sun, and births, deaths, weddings, love and hate continued to play their part in March Square. Part 2 Barbara, groping about in the desolation of having no one to grope with her, discovered that her friend, 
came now less frequently to see her. She was even beginning to wonder whether he had ever really come at all. She had perhaps imagined him, just as on occasion she would imagine her doll, Jane, the Queen of England, or her afternoon tea, the most wonderful meal, with sausages, blackberry jam, and chocolates. Young though she was, she was able to realize that this imagination of hers was capable de tout, and that everyone older than herself said that it was wicked. Therefore was her friend perhaps wicked also. And yet, if the dark curtains that veiled the nursery windows at night, if the glimmering shape of the picture frames, if the square black sides of the doll's house were real, real also was the figure of her friend, real his arousal in her of all the memories of the old days before she was Barbara Flint at all, real, too, his love, his care, his protection. As real, yes, as Miss Letts's bony figure. It was all very puzzling, but he did not come now as in the old days. Barbara played very often in the gardens in the middle of the square, but because she was a timid little girl, she did not make many friends. She knew many of the other children who played there, and sometimes she shared in their games. But her sensitive feelings were so easily hurt, she frequently retired in tears. Every day, on going into the garden, she looked about her, hoping that she would find, before she left it again, someone whom it would be possible to worship. She tried on several occasions to erect altars, but our English temperament is against public display, and she was misunderstood. Then, quite suddenly, as though she had sprung out of the fountain, Mary Adams was there. Mary Adams was aged nine, and her difference from Barbara Flint was that Whereas Barbara craved for affection, she craved for attention. The two demands can be easily confused. Mary Adams was the only child of an aged philosopher, Mr. Adams, who, contrary to all that philosophy teaches, had married a young wife. The young wife, pleased that Mary was so unlike her father, made much of her, and Mary was delighted to be made much of. She was a little girl with flaxen hair, blue eyes, and a fine pink and white coloring. In a few years' time she will be so sure of the attention that her appearance is winning for her that she will make no effort to secure adherence, but just now she is not sufficiently confident she must take trouble. She took trouble with Barbara. Sitting neatly upon a seat, Mary watched 
rude little boys throw sidelong glances in her direction. Her long black legs were quivering with the perception of their interest, even though her eyes were haughtily indifferent. It was then that Barbara, with Miss Letts, an absent-minded companion, came and sat by her side. Barbara and Mary had met at a party, not quite on equal terms, because nine to seven is as sixty to thirty, but they had played hide-and-seek together, and had, by chance, hidden in the same cupboard. The little boys had moved away, and Mary Adams's legs dropped suddenly their tension. "'I'm going to a party tonight,' Mary said, with a studied indifference. Miss Letts knew of Mary's parents, and that, socially, they were all right. A little more all right, were we to be honest, than Mr. and Mrs. Flint. She said, therefore, "'Are you, dear, that will be nice for you?' Instantly, Barbara was trembling with excitement. She knew that the remark had been made to her, and not at all to Miss Letts. Barbara entered once again and instantly upon the field of the passions. Here she was fated by her temperament to be, in all cases, a miserable victim, because panic, whether she were accepted or rejected by the object of her devotion, reduced her to incoherent foolishness. She could only be foolish now, and, although her heart beat like a leaping animal inside her, allowed Miss Letts to carry on the conversation. But Miss Letts's wandering eye hurt Mary's pride. She was not really interested in her, and once Mary had come to that conclusion about anyone, complete, utter oblivion enveloped them. She perceived, however, Barbara's agitation, and at that, flattered and appeased, she was amiable again. There followed between the two a strangled and disconnected conversation. Mary began, "'I've got four dolls at home.' "'Have you?' breathlessly from Barbara. By such slow accuracies as these are we conveyed all our poor mortal days from realism to romance, and with a shocking precipitance are we afterwards flung back out of romance into realism, our natural home again. Yes, four dolls I have. My mother will give me another if I ask her, would your mother? Yes, said Barbara, untruthfully. That's my governess, Miss Marsh, there, with the green hat, that is. I've had her two months. Yes, said Barbara, gazing with adoring eyes. She's going away next week. There's another coming. I can do sums, can you? Yes, again from Barbara. I can do up to twice sixty-three. I'm nine. 
Miss Marsh says I'm clever. I'm seven, said Barbara. I could read when I was seven, long, long words. Can you read? At this moment there arrived the green-hatted Miss Marsh, a plump, optimistic person to whom Miss Letts was gloomily patronizing. Miss Letts always distrusted stoutness in another. It looked like deliberate insult. Mary Adams was conveyed away. Barbara was bereft of her glory. But rather on that instant that Mary Adams vanished did she become glorified. Barbara had been too absurdly agitated to transform onto the mirror of her brain Mary's appearance. In all the dim-colored splendor of flame and mist was Mary now enwrapped. With every step that Barbara took towards her home did the splendor grow. Part 3 then followed an invitation to tea from Mary's mother. Barbara, preparing for the event, suffered her hair to be brushed, choked with strange, half-sweet, half-terrible suffocation that comes from anticipated glories. Half-sweet, because things will, at their worst, be wonderful. Half-terrible, because we know that they will not be so good as we hope. Barbara, washed paler than ever, in a white frock with pink bows, was conducted by Miss Letts. She choked with terror in the strange hall, where she was received with great splendor by Mary. The schoolroom was large and fine and bright, finer far than Barbara's room, swamped by the waters of religion and politics. Barbara could only gulp and gulp, and feel still at her throat that half-sweet, half-terrible suffocation. Within her little body, her heart, so huge and violent, was pounding. "'A very nice room indeed,' said Miss Letts more friendly now to the optimist because she was leaving in a day or two, and could not, therefore, at the moment be considered a success. Her failure balanced her plumpness. Here, at any rate, was the beginning of a great friendship between Barbara Flint and Mary Adams. The character of Mary Adams was admittedly a difficult one to explore. Her mother, a cloud of nurses, and a company of governesses had been baffled completely by its dark caverns and recesses. One clue, beyond question, was selfishness. But this quality, by the very obviousness of it, may tempt us to believe that that is all. It may account, when we are displeased, for so much. It accounted for a great deal with Mary, but not all. She had, I believe, a quite genuine affection for Barbara, nothing very disturbing, 
that could rival the question as to whether she would receive a second helping of pudding or no, or whether she looked better in blue or pink. Nevertheless, the affection was there. During several months she considered Barbara more than she had ever considered anyone in her life before. At that first tea-party she was aware, perhaps, that Barbara's proffered devotion was for complete and absolute self-sacrifice, something that her vanity would not often find to feed it. There was, too, no question of comparison between them. Even when Barbara grew to be nine, she would be a poor thing beside the lusty self-confidence of Mary Adams and this was quite as it should be. All that Barbara wanted was someone upon whom she might pour her devotion, and one of the things that Mary wanted was someone who would spend it upon her. But there stirred, nevertheless, some breath of emotion across that stagnant little pool, Mary's heart. She was moved, perhaps, by pity for Barbara's amazing simplicities, moved also by curiosity as to how far Barbara's devotion to her would go, moved even by some sense of distrust of her own self-satisfaction. She did, indeed, admire anyone who could realize, as completely as did Barbara, the greatness of Mary Adams. It may seem strange to us, and almost terrible, that a small child of seven can feel anything as devastating as this passion of Barbara. But Barbara was made to be swept by storms stronger than she could control, and Mary Adams was the first storm of her life. They spent now a great deal of their time together. Mrs. Adams, who was beginning to find Mary more than she could control, hailed the gentle Barbara with joy. She welcomed also, perhaps, a certain note of rather haughty protection which Mary seemed to be developing. During the hours when Barbara was alone, she thought of the many things that she would say to her friend when they met, and then, at the meeting, could say nothing. Mary talked, or she did not talk, according to her mood, but she soon made it very plain that there was only one way of looking at everything inside and outside the earth, and that was Mary's way. Barbara had no affection, but a certain blind terror for God. It was precisely as though someone were standing with a hammer behind a tree and were waiting to hit you on the back of your head at the first opportunity. But God was not, on the whole, of much importance. Her friend was the great problem, and before many days were passed, Mary was told all about him. He used to come often and often. He'd be there just where you wanted him, 
when the light was out or anything. And he was nice. Barbara sighed. Mary stared at her, seeming in the first full sweep of confidence to be almost alarmed. You don't mean... She stopped, then cried, Why, you silly, you believe in ghosts. No, I don't, said Barbara, not far from tears. Yes, you do. No, I don't. Of course you do, you silly. No, I don't. He, he's real. Well, Mary said, with a final toss of the head, if you go seeing ghosts like that, you can't have me for your friend, Barbara Flint. You can choose, that's all. Barbara was aghast. Such a catastrophe had never been contemplated. Lose, marry, sooner life itself. She resolved sorrowfully to say no more about her friend. But here occurred a strange thing. It was as though Mary felt that over this one matter Barbara had eluded her. She returned to it again and again, always with contemptuous but inquisitive allusion. Did he come last night, Barbara? No. Perhaps he did, only you were asleep. No, he didn't. You don't believe he'll come ever any more, do you, now that I've said he isn't there, really? Yes, I do. Very well, then, I won't see you tomorrow, not at all, not all day I won't. These crises tore Barbara's spirit. Seven is not an age that can reason with life's difficulties, and Barbara had in this business no reasoning powers at all she would die for mary she could not deny her friend what was she to do and yet just at this moment when of all others it was important that he should come to her and confirm his reality he made no sign not only did he make no sign but he seemed to withdraw, silently and surely, all his supports. Barbara discovered that the company of Mary Adams did, in very truth, make everything that was not sure and certain absurd and impossible. There was visible no longer, as there had been before, that country wherein anything was possible, where wonderful things had occurred, and where wonderful things would surely occur again. "'You're pretending,' said Mary Adams sharply, when Barbara ventured some possibly extravagant version of some ordinary occurrence, or suggested that events, rich and wonderful, had occurred during the night. "'Nonsense,' said Mary sharply. She said, nonsense, as though it were the very foundation of her creed of life, as, indeed, to the end of her days, it was. What, then, was Barbara to do? Her friend would not come, 
although passionately she begged and begged and begged that he would. Mary Adams was there every day, sharp and shining, and resolved, demanding the whole of Barbara Flint, body and soul. Nothing was to be kept from her, nothing. What was Barbara Flint to do? She denied her friend, denied that earlier world, denied her dreams and her hopes. She cried a good deal, was very lonely in the dark. Mary Adams, as was her way, having won her victory, passed on to win another. Part 4 Mary began now to find Barbara rather tiresome. Having forced her to renounce her gods, she now despised her for so easy a renunciation. Every day did she force Barbara through her act of denial, and the Inquisition of Spain held in all its records nothing more cruel. Did he come last night? No. He'll never come again, will he? No. Wasn't it silly of you to make up stories like that? Oh, Mary. Yes. There aren't ghosts, nor fairies, nor giants, nor wizards, nor Santa Claus. No. But, Mary, perhaps. No, there aren't. Say there aren't. There isn't. Poor Barbara, even as she concluded this ceremony, clutching her doll close to her to give her comfort, could not refrain from a hurried glance over her shoulder. He might be. But upon Mary this all began soon enough to Paul. She liked some opposition. She liked to defeat people and trample on them and then be gracious. Barbara was a poor little thing. Moreover, Barbara's standard of morality and righteousness annoyed her. Barbara seemed to have no idea that there was anything in this confused world of ours except wrong and right. No dialectician, argue he ever so stoutly, could have persuaded Barbara that there was such a color in the world's paint-box as gray. It's bad to tell lies, it's bad to steal, it's bad to put your tongue out, it's good to be kind to poor people, it's good to say no when you want more pudding but mustn't have it. Barbara was no prig. She did not care the least little thing about these things, nor did she ever mention them, but let a question of conduct arise, then was Barbara's way plain and clear. She did not always take it, but there it was. With Mary, how very different! She had, I am afraid, no sense of right and wrong at all, but only a coolly ironical perception of the things that her elders disliked and permitted. Very foolish and absurd, these elders. We have always before our eyes some generation that provokes our irony. 
the one before us, the one behind us, our own, perhaps. For Mary Adams, it would always be any generation that was not her own. Her business in life was to avoid unpleasantness, to extract the honey from every flower, but above all to be admired, praised, preferred. At first, with her pleasure at Barbara's adoration, she had found within herself a truly alarming desire to be good. It might, after all, be rather amusing to be, in strict reality, all the fine things that Barbara considered her. She endeavoured for a week or two to adjust herself to this point of view, to consider, however slightly, whether it were right or wrong to do something that she particularly wished to do. But she found it very tiresome. The effort spoilt her temper, and no one seemed to notice any change. She might as well be bad as good were there no one present to perceive the difference. She gave it up, and from that moment found that she suffered Barbara less gladly than before. Meanwhile, in Barbara also, strange forces had been at work. She found that her imagination, making up stories, simply, in spite of all the Mary Adamses in the world, refused to stop. Still would the almond tree and the fountain, the gold dust on the roofs of the houses when the sun was setting, the racing hurry of raindrops down the window-pane, the funny old woman with the red shawl who brought plants round in a wheelbarrow, start her storytelling. Still could she not hold herself from fancying at times that her doll Jane was a queen, and that Miss Letts could make spells by the mere crook of her bony fingers. Worst of all, still she must think of her friend, tell herself with an ache that he would never come back again, feel sometimes that she would give up Mary and all the rest of the world if he would only be beside her bed as he used to be, talking to her, holding her hand. During these days, had there been any one to observe her, she was a pathetic little figure, with her thin legs like black sticks, her saucer eyes that so readily filled with tears, her eager, half-apprehensive expression, the passionate clutch of the doll to her heart, and it is, after all, a painful business, this adoration. No human soul can live up to the heights of it, and, what is more, no human soul ought to. As Mary grew tired of Barbara, she allowed to slip from her many of the virtuous graces that had hitherto, for Barbara's benefit, adorned her. She lost her temper, was cruel simply for the pleasure that Barbara's ill-restrained agitation yielded her, but even beyond this 
squandered recklessly her reputation for virtue. Twice, before Barbara's very eyes, she told lies, and told them, too, with a real mastery of the craft. Long practice and a natural disposition had brought her very near perfection. Barbara, her heart beating wildly, refused to understand. Mary could not be so. She held Jane to her breast more tightly than before. And the denials continued. Twice a day now they were extorted from her. With every denial, the ghost of her friend stole more deeply into the mist. He was gone. He was gone. And what was left? Very soon, and with unexpected suddenness, the crisis came. Part 5 Upon a day, Barbara accompanied her mother to tea with Mrs. Adams. The ladies remained downstairs in the dull splendor of the drawing-room. Mary and Barbara were delivered to Miss Fortescue, the most recent guardian of Mary's life and prospects. "'She's simply awful. You needn't mind a word she says,' Mary instructed her friend, and prepared then to behave accordingly. They had tea, and Mary did as she pleased. Miss Fortescue protested, scolded, was weak when she should have been strong, and said often, "'Now, Mary, there's a dear.' Barbara the faint color coming and going in her cheeks, watched. She watched Mary now with quite a fresh intention. She had begun her voyage of discovery. What was in Mary's head? What would she do next? What Mary did next was to propose, after tea, that they should travel through other parts of the house. "'We'll be back in a moment,' Mary flung over her head to Miss Fortescue. They proceeded then through passages, peering into dark rooms, looking behind curtains, Barbara following behind her friend, who seemed to be moved by a rather aimless intention of finding something to do that she shouldn't. They finally arrived at Mrs. Adams's private and particular sitting-room, a place that may be said, in the main, to stand as a protest against the rule of the ancient philosopher, being all pink and flimsy and fragile, with precious vases and two post-impressionist pictures, a green apple tree, one, the other a brown woman, and lace cushions and blue bowls with rose-leaves in them. Barbara had never been into this room before, nor had she ever, in all her seven years, seen anything so lovely. "'Mother says I'm never to come in here,' announced Mary. "'But I do, lots. Isn't it pretty?' "'Perhaps we oughtn't,' began Barbara. "'Oh, yes, we ought!' answered Mary scornfully. 
always you and your oughtn't. She turned, and her shoulders brushed a low bracket that was close to the door. A large nankin vase was at her feet scattered into a thousand pieces. Even Mary's proud indifference was stirred by this catastrophe, and she was down on her knees in an instant, trying to pick up the pieces. Barbara stared, her eyes wide with horror. "'Oh, Mary!' she gasped. "'You might help instead of just standing there.' Then the door opened, and, like the avenging gods from Olympus, in came the two ladies, eagerly with smiles. "'Now I must just show you,' began Mrs. Adams. Then the catastrophe was discovered, a moment's silence, then a cry from the poor lady. "'Oh, my vase! It was priceless!' It was not, but no matter. About Barbara the air clung so thick with catastrophe that it was from a very long way indeed that she heard Mary's voice. Barbara didn't mean. Did you do this, Barbara? Her mother turned round upon her. You know, Mary, I've told you a thousand times that you're not to come in here. This from Mrs. Adams, who was obviously very angry indeed. Mary was on her feet now, and, as she looked across at Barbara, there was in her glance a strange look, ironical, amused, inquisitive, even affectionate. "'Well, mother, I knew we mustn't, but Barbara wanted to look, so I said we'd just peep, but that we weren't to touch anything, and then Barbara couldn't help it really her shoulder just brushed the shelf and still as she looked there was in her eyes that strange irony well now you see me as i am i'm bored by all this pretending it's gone on long enough are you going to give me away but barbara could do nothing her whole world was there like the Nankin vase, smashed about her feet, as it never, never would be again. "'So you did this, Barbara,' Mrs. Flint said. "'Yes,' said Barbara. Then she began to cry. Part 6 At home she was sent to bed. Her mother read her a chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew, and then left her. She lay there, sick with crying, her eyes stiff and red, wondering how she would ever get through the weeks and weeks of life that remained to her. She thought, I'll never love anyone again. Mary took my friend away and then she wasn't there herself. There isn't anybody. Then it suddenly occurred to her that she need never be put through the agony of her denials again, that she could believe 
what she liked, make up stories. Her friend would, of course, never come to see her any more, but at least now she would be able to think about him. She would be allowed to remember. Her brain was drowsy, her eyes half-closed. Through the humming air something was coming. The dark curtains were parted. The light of the late afternoon sun was faint yellow upon the opposite wall. There was a little breeze. Drowsily, drowsily, her drooping eyes felt the light, the stir of the air, the sense that someone was in the room. She looked up. She gave a cry. He had come back. He had come back after all. End of chapter 7